And I ask that you open your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15. We're continuing a long series of studies through the Gospel of John. This morning we come to John 15, verses 12 through 17. John 15, verses 12 through 17. Please give your attention to God's holy, inerrant word. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Every week I spend some time reading through articles, whether it be for scriptural studies or theology studies or just to keep up on some of the ministry issues that the church faces in the cultural context in which we labor and fight. And I came across an article in my reading this week. It was written by a Baptist pastor and it had this provocative title to it. It said, I am a Southern Baptist and I love a man. Now that caught me up my attention. And what surprised me immediately was that it didn't deal with same-sex marriage at all, which is certainly one of the hottest issues in our culture today, but what it dealt with was friendship among men. In the article, the author writes about a friendship that started with another uh, student when he was at Grove City College, and during his time there, they became extremely close, like many college relationships are. But what's kind of unique about this college friendship is that it survived after college. They worked hard, even though they went their separate ways and got married and started families and started careers in different parts of the country. They worked very hard to stay in touch with each other, communicated with each other every week, often came, uh, sometimes flying great distance to spend time together, and with a lot of hard work, were able to keep that friendship not only strong, but even getting stronger over the years as they went through many hard as well as joyful circumstances together as friends. Let me just read to you a couple of sentences from the end of the article. He says, We as the church have conceded the kind of love I share with this brother of mine to the gay community. We are fearful, fearful of misinterpretation by our culture, fearful of vulnerability, fearful that maybe it's unbiblical. This is a lie from the prince of darkness. He wants brothers in Christ to feel uncomfortable with truly loving one another. He has perverted brotherly affection and made it completely inaccessible to the believer. In our culture, there's a lot of joking these days about bromance. 
And some of it is very funny, as that subject makes us men uncomfortable about how to relate to one another. But the sad side of that is that we have blurred the lines between what is sin and what isn't sin. Matter of fact, we blurred the lines between what is sin and what is something beautiful as a gift from God. In the article, the author makes mention of Jonathan and David, and that's always been one of the things I'm, I'm sad about. When you study the life of David, many modern liberal scholars want to make out the, the deep, intimate friendship between Jonathan and David that's portrayed in, in the book of 1 Samuel. They want to portray it as a homosexual relationship only because it makes a couple of statements about their friendship like this. It says in 1 Samuel 18, it says, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And then later it says that Jonathan delighted much in David. Based on those comments, they want to say that this was a sinful relationship. But the author in his article, I think, rightly says, To love another man as your own soul is not homosexual love. It is the love of Christ. It is a true willingness to lay down your life for your brother. That's the kind of love that Jesus spells out here for all who are disciples of Christ, no matter what your gender is. He calls upon those who commit their lives to him, To love one another as you love your own soul. To delight much in one another. To lay down your lives for one another. That's the love of Christ. We've been looking at John 15 and we saw that in the first 11 verses last week, Jesus compares himself and his followers to a grapevine and its branches. And he, compare, he talks about the relationship that we have with him and that we have with each other is very organic, very life-giving, like a vine and its branches. And he ends that passage by saying that the key to having a strong relationship with him is that we abide in him, that we abide in Christ. And we saw last week that abiding in Christ isn't some kind of mystical, transcendental, subjective inner state that we acquire by emptying our mind and chanting things over and over. We don't get to abide in Christ in some mystical way. We abide in Christ when we are in his word regularly, when we study and dig deep into his word. We abide in Christ when we pray as we proceed through every day of our life. We abide in Christ, he tells us, when we keep his commandments, when we obey him. So there's nothing supernatural or spectacular about that in one sense. It's kind of mundane. It's hard work much of the time to abide in Christ. But when you're in the word and when you're in prayer and when you obey, you draw close to Christ and you draw life and grace from him. He says that when we abide in him, we will bear fruit. And the most important fruit that we will bear among many fruit, the most important fruit that we will bear when we abide in Christ is the fruit of love. And that's what he talks about in this section today. He starts out in verse 12 saying, This is my commandment, 
Want to summarize all my commandments for how you are to deal with others into one? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now he's talking to the church. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who have committed themselves to him. And this is his most important commandment. Matter of fact, what he says here in verse 12 is a restatement of what he said back in chapter 13. Listen to what he says there, beginning in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The most important command is that we love one another, and by that, show our love for Christ. Well, in today's passage, he gets a little more specific about that, and he introduces the concept of friendship. And just as you cannot know what love is by going to the world and listening to what's on Top 40 radio or watching television or movies, you can't find out what love is that way. You've got to go to Christ to find out what real love is. So you cannot know what friendship is by going to the world either. Christ has defined Friendship. He has established a brand new paradigm for friendship. If you are in Christ, you need to totally rethink what it means to be a friend. It's not the same idea that the world has, and it is so much better than what the world has. As we dig into this, I want you to be thinking about this, that the best friendships that exist in state college must be and I'm sure they are, found in the Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching churches of State College. And the friendships that are outside of those churches pale in comparison. And that's the way it should be if what Jesus says is true. Well, what are the characteristics of Christ-like friendship? Once you remember three words, you've got them there in your bulletin. Self-sacrifice, self-disclosure, and submission. First of all, Christ-like friendship is about loving self-sacrifice. He says, love one another as I have loved you. That's always the standard every day that we got to keep going back to. We are to love each other the way that he has loved us. He's saying, don't look at the relationships of the world to find out what friendship looks like. Look at how I have loved you. Once you've known the love of Christ, you cannot be satisfied with the love of the world. I went to General Assembly, the national meetings, the denominational meetings of the PCA a couple weeks ago. And during one of my nights, evenings where they let us go free, I walked about two miles, because I didn't have a car, to what I was told was one of the best Mexican restaurants in Houston, Texas. I love Mexican food, but I'm a Yankee through and through. I have rarely ventured south of the Mason-Dixon line. I was told that I should not eat real Mexican food in Texas when I get there because I'll never be satisfied with Mexican food in Pennsylvania ever again. (laughs) But I risked it. (laughs) I walked two miles to El Tiempo, the best Mexican restaurant in Houston, Texas, had the best Mexican food. Uh, It was heavenly. So much better than any Mexican food I ever had before. 
It was so good that the next night during our break between meetings, I walked two miles again to El Tiempo (laughs) to have the same plate full of quesadillas. And it's true, I went to one of our local Mexican restaurants last week and not sure I ever want to go again. (laughs) The love of Christ, the friendship that Christ talks about, is of a quality that is so far superior to the friendship of the world that we would never want to go back to that lifestyle again. These disciples, these 11 that are left with Jesus after Judas has departed, these 11 disciples had experienced his kind of love for three years, face-to-face, 24-7. As he endured their sins, as he endured their ignorance, as he patiently taught them and cared for them, but they were about to see a display of his love that would go so far beyond anything they had ever even contemplated before. And Jesus alludes to it here. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this. Then someone lay down his life for his friends. Now he had already told them this, and they still didn't understand. He told them back in chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the ultimate expression of love and friendship that you can ever experience. And he's not talking about you or I laying down our lives for one another. He's talking about himself. The perfect, eternal, unique Son of God who lowered himself to come and dwell with us in this ugly, dark, messy, fallen world. And he lived among us a life of complete perfection, never ever breaking a commandment of God in thought, word, or deed. And then allowing himself, voluntarily going to the cross. And there on the cross, crying out, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God the Father had turned his back on him. Because Christ had taken upon himself all of the sins that you and I have committed, past, present, and future. And he bore the wrath of God, the pains of hell, the eternal pains of hell that you and I deserve. He paid for them in full at the cross. He died for us while we were his enemies. While we were shaking our fist in rebellion against him. So that he could make us his friends. That's the new definition of love for anybody who is his disciple. We can't die for one another in the way that he died for us. But that same kind of loving self-sacrifice is now the standard that we strive for. This is why we need to talk about the the love of the cross all the time in the church. This is why we need to study it all the time, dig deep into the theology of the cross over and over again and again because you will never plumb the depths of the love of the cross. And it is our standard by which we are to love one another. 
We need to talk about the cross all the time. We need to remind each other of the cross all the time because it's God's definition of love that is so dramatically different than the world's. That's why John says in his epistle, 1 John 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, when you think about the world's kind of love, there is kind of a pale reflection of Christ's love. It's very, very watered down, very obscured, very twisted and corrupted. But the world honors sacrifice, doesn't it? I mean, think about, especially this time of year, how we talk about the soldiers who go to war for us, the sacrifice that they make, the honor and the esteem that they get in our culture. Think about first responders, EMTs, people in hospitals, the kind of sacrifices they make. The world does honor that kind of sacrifice. Think about movies that you've enjoyed. How often is heroic self-sacrifice a central plot point of some of the most popular movies that we watch? Frodo and the Lord of the Rings. Captain Miller and Saving Private Ryan. Neo in the last Matrix movie. Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Or Spock in The Wrath of Khan. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. But Paul makes an interesting point when he talks about what real love is, the love of Christ in 1 Corinthians 13. He gives all the characteristics of Christ-like love, but there's one that I think a lot of times we don't notice. It's right there in the beginning of chapter 13. He says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Isn't that interesting that Paul says, you can give up everything you own in this world. You can even give up your physical life itself and not be motivated by love. And that's why I make that distinction, that the self-sacrifice of Christ is not a selfish self-sacrifice. It's a self-sacrifice for the blessing of others. And that's what's unique to Christ and the church. That you sacrifice for others anything for the sake of blessing them to the glory of God. That's the love of Christ. Christ-like love isn't simply sacrifice. It's more than sacrifice. It's sacrifice that's motivated by the love of God. And the world is incapable of that. You and I are incapable of it if we're not born again by the Holy Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit can give you that kind of love for others. A desire, and that love for others is desiring to see them blessed, to see them prosper, to see them get what is best for them in the eyes of God, not in our eyes or in their eyes, but in the eyes of God, to get what is best for them, whatever it may cost you. Whether it, it, it's a, to the one who really loves, it's an exchange that is worth it. To exchange earthly money, to exchange earthly possessions, to exchange time on earth, to exchange even my physical life, if it could bring about the blessing of others to lead them to the one who is the true treasure in the universe, Jesus Christ. 
It's the kind of love that Paul had for the unbelieving Jews in his day. He makes an amazing statement in Romans 9. Listen carefully. He's talking about unbelieving Jews, Jews who did not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And listen to what he says about them. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm astounded by that statement of the love of Christ that Paul makes there. He's saying, I'd be willing to go to hell for all eternity if somehow that sacrifice that I would make would somehow bring about the salvation of my brothers, the Jews, who don't believe. Paul was a sinner himself in need of grace, so he couldn't do that. His death, his suffering would have been for his own sins. He couldn't give that to his unbelieving brethren. But Jesus Christ went to hell for you and me. See, that's the love of Christ. The willingness to give up anything to see others find the treasure that is in Jesus Christ. You know, when we love each other that way, and we love our community that way, we will transform our community with the love of Christ. Secondly, Christ-like friendship is about self-disclosure. It's about self-disclosure. Verse 14, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. He's contrasting his disciples to the first century concept of what a servant or a slave was in Jewish and Roman culture. Servants are slaves in the first century were treated like property or machinery or tools or assets, not like people. If a master said to a slave or a servant, do this, he expected him to do it without questioning. And he certainly didn't sit down and explain to him all the reasons why he wanted him to do what he told him to do. But Jesus says, I have called you my friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, he's defining friendship as being ones who know the mind and heart of the master. We are not Christ's servants or slaves. We are his friends. We not only know what God wants us to do, but we know the big picture. We know what his plans and intentions and purposes are because he's revealed it to us through Christ, through his word. So we're his friends. He has taken us into his confidence. He has revealed himself to us, not just his will, but himself, his heart, so that we can know him and not just what he wants from us. We are his friends. Abraham was called a friend of God in the Old Testament. And one of the places you see that very clearly in his life is when God was about to rain down judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But before he does so, he goes to talk to Abraham. And this is what God says. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? God stopped 
in the midst of his plan to make sure that his chosen one understood his plan and intentions. He didn't have to do that. He did that because he had made Abraham his friend. Psalm 25 verse 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. I love that verse. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. Paul says that Christ called him and the apostles, his friends, to be stewards of the mysteries of God. And in Ephesians 1, Paul says that the Father has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. It's what he calls in Colossians 1, the mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, that's the huge difference between the one true religion revealed in the scriptures and all the false religions out there, especially when you think of a religion like Islam. In Islam, you're not a friend of God. God doesn't reveal to you his heart. You do what he tells you to do like a slave. But the true God brings us close and shows us his heart and enters into a relationship, an intimate relationship with us through Jesus Christ. What does that say to us about our friendships, especially here in the church? It says to us that friendship is about self-disclosure. You can't really know one another unless you reveal yourself to one another. Unless you're open. Unless you're transparent. Unless you're honest and vulnerable. I understand why people out in the world that aren't believers, that don't know the grace of Jesus Christ, can't be friends like that. Because we're sinners. And we betray each other all the time. We hurt each other all the time. We step on each other's toes. We offend one another all the time. And the way that we respond to that in the flesh is to put up walls, to put up, to guard ourselves, protect ourselves. Don't be open. Don't be vulnerable. Don't be transparent. And I'm here to tell you that the cross of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, is the only way to take down those walls. The only way to get rid of the facades. The only way to be open with one another, even though you are going to hurt one another, you are going to offend one another. It's because we always have the cross. We can always go there for forgiveness. For forgiveness with God and forgiveness with each other. There is always a remedy for what separates us and causes us to be closed towards one another. And it's always the cross. That's why you can't really know the love of Christ through friendship, through just coming and sitting in the back in a worship service and leaving after the service is over. You're never going to know anything to the depths of what Christian friendship is all about. You need to get involved. You need to get in each other's lives. You need to get in each other's homes. You need to get into small group Bible studies and small ministry groups together because that's where the openness and transparency and vulnerability takes place. And as you exercise forgiveness in those settings, 
Your relationships will bond at levels far deeper than what you could have ever imagined. Jesus teaches us that friendship is about self-disclosure. It's about self-sacrifice, the love of the cross, and it's about self-disclosure. Finally, Christ-like friendship is about submission, mutual submission in Christ. Do you notice what Jesus does in the end of this passage? Now put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You could start to be kind of puffed up, couldn't you? You kind of pat yourself in the back and think, I'm a friend of Jesus. Jesus calls me his friend. Aren't I special? Jesus says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. When you talk about being a friend of Jesus, don't ever lose sight of that. We did not choose him, but he chose us and appointed us to go and bear fruit. Jesus initiated the relationship with his disciples, and he initiated his relationship with you and me. He sought us. We didn't seek him. While we were his enemies, he died for us so that we could become his friends. Don't ever forget that. I've always said Reformed theology that emphasizes the sovereignty of God's grace should always produce the most humble Christians on the face of the planet. We didn't seek him. He sought us. You understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, you are my friends, but you are not my equals. We have a hard time thinking of friendship between people who are not equal. We have a hard time as sinners dealing with that. But never forget that we are Jesus' friends, but he is our Lord. We are his friends, but he is our Lord. Remember those old bumper stickers? used to say, God is my co-pilot. That's, it's at this point that they really missed the boat on that, those bumper stickers. You see, God doesn't come alongside of us to help us fulfill our plan and mission and agenda in life. That's not what it's about. My senior year in high school, we were supposed to have the best basketball team in our league. Everybody's expecting us to at least compete for the championship, if not be there. But we got a new coach that year. Young teacher became our coach. And you could tell early on that his main goal was to be what we used to call a player's coach, to be best buddies with all the guys on the team, to hang out with the guys outside of practice, to be one of the guys on the team. The problem was there was no sense of authority. Practices were chaotic. Guys did what they wanted to do. And when it came to the games, we didn't play together. There was no submission to authority at all. And we ended up going 1-10 in league and ended up in last place. Now, I'm not saying he was the only reason. There were other factors. We are Christ's friends. He is our Lord. As I was studying this passage this week, I came across an interesting observation by a commentator. I'd never thought about this before. This commentator pointed out that there are several places in Scripture where believers are called friends of God or friends of Jesus. We are friends of God or friends of Jesus. There's several places in Scripture that uses that language, including here where we're studying this morning. But there's not a single verse in Scripture that calls 
God or Jesus our friend? Interesting observation. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily to think of the Lord Jesus or God the Father as friends. I'm not sure. It's actually shaken my thought on that, and uh, I was the one who asked for us to include what a friend we have in Jesus for the service before I studied the passage this week. I still think it's a good hymn, but I do think we have to be careful. I think the point is something for us to think about. Because we tend to think that we don't need to submit to our friends. We tend to think that our friends are there to help us do what we want to do in life. And I think the scripture very carefully keeps us from thinking about Christ as someone who is anything close to being on our level. He is our Lord. What does this have to do with our friendships with one another? Well, as I thought about this this week, it has everything to do with our relationships with one another. What do our friendships look like? It's all about laying aside our agendas, laying aside our missions, laying aside our plans for our lives so that we can come together and submit to the mission of the kingdom. That's what our friendship is really all about in this world. He says, he chose us and appointed us to go and bear fruit. He has called us out of our selfish, self-centered, worldly missions and agendas in our individual lives, called us into the church, and has put us under his lordship to accomplish his great mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there is great friendship in that work. We submit to him, he doesn't submit to us. We do his will, he doesn't do our will. He chooses us, he equips us and sends us, and we bond with one another in that work. Think about the word submission. It's to take our mission in life, and I don't know what your mission is, whether it's career-oriented or marriage-oriented or childbearing-oriented or hobby-oriented or sports-oriented, whatever your mission is in life. It's taking your mission and submitting it, putting it below the mission of the kingdom. That's what submission is. And think about it. The Lord of the universe has shared his work with us. He has invited us into his work and uses us to accomplish his purposes. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says we are to be always submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We lay aside our agendas, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and in obedience to his great commission. About six years ago, my wife and I went on a missions trip to Turkey. And I talk about it because it was an, a, just a, a life-transforming experience for us in so many ways. It was the first missions trip I'd ever been on, and I only went on that six years ago. So I was totally blind for many years to what the benefits are of going on these kind of missions trips. And we often talk about how short-term missions trips really aren't for the people that you go and minister to as much as for the people who go on the mission. And we found that to be absolutely true. Because we went with another church. It was only Susanna. We didn't know anybody on the team. There was a team of, I don't remember, 12, 15 people we didn't know anybody else in that team before we got on the plane with them to fly to Turkey. 
But we spent 10 days together living with each other, eating with each other, and ministering together for the kingdom. And we experienced in a very small nutshell what Jesus is talking about here of submitting to his mission and working together for it. And you know what happened. If you've ever been on a short-term missions trip, you know what happened. Whether you're talking about local missions or foreign missions, you work together for the kingdom and you bond at a deep level with one another. I've watched people go away on missions trips and come back with that. And I'll be honest, it kind of creeped me out, the kind of bonding that took place on these missions trips together until I actually tasted of it and understood it. I mean, it's one thing. You'll see it. The world has a version of that. You go off on, you know, sports trips or whatever. You can experience some little, tiny, superficial measure of that. But go work for the kingdom together in that kind of an intense way, and you'll experience a deep bonding. I'm not trying to send you all out on short-term missions trips here. What I'm trying to do is say, this is what you're here for. This is why you're a part of this church family is that we submit our missions to the great commission of Jesus Christ to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to State College, Center County, Central Pennsylvania, United States, and the world. We submit our missions to the mission of Christ, and we will bond together in that great work. A deep friendship like you've never known before. And that kind of friendship is so supernatural so different from what the world experiences that they're going to be drawn and want to be a part of it. They're going to begin asking us a reason for the hope that's within us if we love each other that way. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's why he keeps saying, love one another. Don't love each other like the world loves each other. Love one another the way I have loved you. And you will bear fruit. Fruit, he says, that lasts for eternity. There are a lot of lonely people out there in State College. A lot of lonely people. People who have tried the world's way of friendship and have gotten burned over and over and over and now they're dying of loneliness inside a shell so thick that nobody can penetrate it. And only the gospel can. And Christ has entrusted that to you to take it to them. Christ-like friendship is based in loving self-sacrifice, humble self-disclosure, and submission to his will and each other. As we dig deep into the scriptures together, as we open our lives to each other and pray together and go out into the community to serve and to spread the word together, we will experience that friendship and there is nothing more valuable. We love Christ because he first loved us. We love each other because Christ first loved us. And the closer we get to Christ, the closer we'll get to each other. My goal in life is not to love you as much as you love me. My goal is to love you as much as Christ has loved me. I can't do that, neither can you. But he has promised us his Holy Spirit to make it possible. And I invite you to go on the journey together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Everything we've talked about here this morning is impossible if Christ hasn't died on the cross and been raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. Help us to live in a way that is consistent with the gospel. Help us to love one another as Christ has loved us. And may we change the world as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.